Good morning. Good morning. So who's supporting the Chiefs with me? Go Chiefs. Yay. Nah, nah, I'm supporting 49ers. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, so it's a new year, right? It's what, the second month in the new year? So, you know, a month has passed. Um, before we get started, actually, please, if you don't have a Bible, uh, you have the ushers coming down the aisle, please get one from them. If you don't have a Bible, please keep that. If you know someone that needs one, please take one and give to them. All right. Um, so today we will continue our study of Ephesians chapter 1. The last time, I think about three weeks ago, we settled in from verses 3 to 6, I believe. Today we will cover verses 6 to 14. Um, and the title of the sermon is Deepening Intimacy with God, part 2. Um, before I get into that, right, like, like I was saying, it's, a, it's about a month or so into the new year. You know, if you're like me, you have resolutions for the year. So I have to ask you, man, how's that going? How are those resolutions going? How's the time in the gym coming? If you're like John, do you bike every day or run every day? If you're like Nick, I know you don't do any exercise any day. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, but, but January has been hectic for me. It's been just crazy. Uh, some days I don't even know what day of the week we are on. Um, but, but there are certain things that stop you dead in your tracks, right? Uh, so last week, actually, during the summer, I got a text from my friend, like, oh, Kobe Bryant is dead. Uh, and I'm like, are you kidding? Like, nah, this is fake news, right? And I was standing right there, and I think it was during worship, right, when we worshiped to after the summer. And it's one of those things that just sort of stops you and, again, makes you consider life and some hard questions, right? Uh, I follow basketball, which is why... My friend uh, texted me, not that I follow it that much, but I, I keep up with it. But the fact that nine souls just died like that. Now, of course, we do know that. I think even maybe in just the U.S. alone, we have a couple thousand people that die every day. But a lot of times we don't think about that. And death has this way of bursting whatever bubble we live in, right? It has a way of humbling us and reminding us of mortality, and and for me, I had to remember that I have a mortal coil that is burning down, right? Every day it burns until eventually it burns out, right? In a sense, I am more closer to death today than I was 10 years ago, right? Yesterday. Um, and it forces you to ask that question, why am I here? What, what, what am I pursuing in life? Uh, the answer to that question it is always this. You were made to glorify God and enjoy God forever. You were made to worship him forever. And the best way to do that is to become more Christ-like, who is the express, right? Christ is that express radiance of God's glory. And so if we are made to glorify God forever, the best way to do that is we become more Christ-like day unto day, which is our purpose. So my hope today is this, that as we study this scripture, we are reminded of this invitation into deep intimacy with God. Right? We are reminded that life is beyond our goals and setting things we set, which are great and are important. One of the things I appreciate about Kobe is his dedication. But honestly, I didn't like him that much at the peak of his career. I appreciated his craft. 
but he was too focused on winning for me, right? And he had this famous phrase where he would say, you know, friendships come and go, but championships are forever, right? That was his focus, right? Now, towards the latter part of his career, something changed. He wasn't in his prime, but he was still very good. You saw him laugh more. You saw him engage with players more on the court. Usually he doesn't do that. He has the scowl on his face, right? But now he's laughing, he's hanging out with folks on the, on the court and just laughing with players, opponents. And after he retired, actually, he made the statement that, you know what, championships come and go. What matters is what you do in terms of how you impact other people, how you help other people, right? And I, I, I really appreciated him for that and some of his shift, right? But again, back to us, we even know that even just the idea of helping other people Right, can even become an idol, right? Because of what you get back from it. And so we know that the focus is always how do we glorify God? How do we become more Christ like? So as we study today, my, my hope again is, is that we, we see that God always offers us a, a, a lamp, the lamp of His Word, right? And when we are in disorienting situations and things are just tough or we don't know how things are working out and we want a map, an outline of how things work and where to go and how things end, God always offers a lamp, the lamp of his word, right? And that's what I'm hoping we, we study today, that at the end of this text, we, we come to understand who we are and whom we belong to. Right, we come to see that God is always offering this invitation to a deep, interactive, budding friendship with himself. He's always offering that to you, always inviting you into that, right? never rejecting you. So like I said, the, the focus of the text today will be Ephesians chapter 1 from verses 6 to 14. But I'm going to read from verse 3 to 14 just to give us a fuller context. So Ephesians chapter 1, let me read from verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which is set forth in Christ as a plan for the, for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who walks all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13. In him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So, Father, we come again before you to study your word. 
please teach us. Please speak to us where we are and open our hearts to hear you. Help us on one hand be looking at our lives and what's going on in there and be connecting that to what you say. Right, so that we're truly open to receiving the gift that you give. So Lord, please come teach us your words today. In Jesus' name, amen. So the last time we were in this passage, right, we, we, what we did was we first, um, we, we settled on the fact that verses 3 to 14 is this one long run-on sentence from Paul, almost as an outburst of praise, right? And what we did was we focused on verses 3 to 6. We extracted certain promises and two certain implications, and then we settled on an application. Uh, the first implication we drew is that God, the triune God, is always, is always, right, acting deliberately for our sake, for your sake, to bring you into fellowship with Him. We see that in verse three, and the reason for that is for you to realize that you matter to God, right. The second implication we drew on is we looked at election as proof of his love. I know election is a hard subject to wrangle with, right? And we touched on the fact that election, with our limited understanding and limited language, right? Election is God choosing his people without our merit, right? And that that does not eliminate human responsibility, Right, it doesn't take away human responsibility. Election is not set against human responsibility. And the implications we drew from that is that our faith rests on the complete work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not based on our merit or anything we do. Therefore, we have no room for boasting. Rather, it should humble us, right? And it should draw us closer to himself, and we see that the purpose of election is unto holiness. Right? Holiness there doesn't mean you are perfectly moral. It means you are set apart for God unto God. Right? You're consecrated unto him. And then we also settled on this promise of sonship by adoption. The fact that Christ Jesus, right, God through Christ has adopted us into his family. Right? That he offers us the same standing as Christ. Christ being the firstborn. Right? But he offers us the same standing as Christ in his family. What I hope you took away from all of that is that you see the extent to which God loves you. And that you see that all those promises that God is pouring out through Paul in Ephesians 1, just 3 to 6 that we looked at yesterday, you, you see that God gives you all of this, not as a grumpy old man, right? But that with delightful pleasure, like the planning, the willing, the election, all of that he does with delightful pleasure. So I want that to sink into you for a minute, that the plan of God for your life your conformity to his son's likeness, the depth of his love for you, the grace that he lavishes upon you, bringing you into his family, all of that God does with delightful joy. So today's focus is this. I'm going to focus on verses 6 to 14 of Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm going to do some of the same things. And I'm going to draw out some promises from there, some blessings, not everything. I will draw some implications and then we will settle on a major application. So the first promise I want to draw from there is this idea that we are inundated with grace. 
So I'm going to pull that from verses 6 to 8, the first part of verse 8. Actually, I'll read from verse 5. And what I want you to take note of is how Paul describes the grace that God offers. Right, so let me read. In love, from verse 5, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us, in the original language, that's actually with which he has graced us in the beloved. Now, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. So you see, you cannot read this passage, just the short verses, and you, 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 you can't miss grace, right? It's written all over that, right? If you grew up in the church, uh, the definition of grace we usually come up with is grace is unmerited favor. I actually see it as something else. I think unmerited favor is an attribute of grace, right? But I see grace as God coming to help you do what you don't, what you can't do by yourself. I see that grace is an empowerment for living life the way God would have you live it. It does include forgiveness of sin, but it is beyond that, right? So in, in, in essence, actually, uh, grace is God's unbelievable acceptance of us. It is not so much as something God gives, it is that God gives himself. Right? So grace is this empowerment for life that we see here that God is offering to us. And what we have to see is that the initiative always comes from God. It isn't something you earn. It isn't something you work for. Grace is a gift from God. And so that should make you understand that it is always available to you. God given himself to you. Right? Now, what's the point of all of that? It says, well, let me shift to verse 7, actually, because this always, this has a personal connection to me. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Now, if you are like me, you're keenly aware of your shortcomings and your flaws and your sins before God. And um, this verse to me, I consider the miracle of all miracles because it is an opportunity. Like it tells me that I can always go back to God over and over again, right? So for me, this verse is uh, the righteous judge of the whole universe, right? Me standing before him in my sin and him offering me himself, drawing me into relationship, welcoming me into his family. One of the things I say to myself when I'm before God and I'm very convicted of my sins, I'm like, God, I am tired of myself. Like, I I don't know if you're tired of me, but I'm tired of myself. And thank God, uh, thank you that you're not tired of me, right? And, And this verse is one of those verses I come back to, right? Because there is a stress here of God's grace just being poured out for us, right? Even when we are in sin, him drawing us back to himself, right? Salvation derives from the luxuries of God's grace, right? God longs to be with you, right? This is where he pours himself out for you. And the implication of this, of what we've just read is this, that though our sins... Though they be many, right? His mercy is more. 
right? And so it was Martin Luther, I believe, that said all of life is repentance. Right? You, you, cannot, you cannot take this walk of God seriously, this walk with God, and not take repentance seriously. Unless you're perfect, which we know nobody is. Right? So unless we, 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 uh, if we are to take the, this walk of faith seriously, we will continue to discover layers of unsurrendered self before God. We will continue to see the depravity of our souls in different areas, right? And that is an invitation not to run away from God, but to run back to Him because of this. Because we are inundated with grace, because He's always longing after us. So, repentance, and by the way, I should say something about repentance. Repentance is not crying, right? It is not even showing remorse. All those things can be part of it, but primarily repentance is a turning to God. Right? As you turn to God, you naturally turn away from those things. That's what repentance is. It is a turning towards God. So let, let Christ Jesus carry the burden of your sins and the punishment you deserve. Let him exchange the hard way of a sinner for the deeply satisfying way of one who knows Christ as Lord and Savior. And so one of the things I want to ask today is that if you are here today and you do not have a relationship with God, right, if, if, if this is an opportunity, this is an invitation for you to see the depth of your sins, to see that Christ is the only one that saves and he has provided that through the cross, through his sacrifice. Right? And to know that he always welcomes you. He always welcomes you. And, and so again, like I said, later on at the end of the service, we'll have certain things we do have some home group folks on the right here. Uh, if, you, if you haven't accepted Christ, please walk up to them. Please talk to someone close to you, right? And just walk through what that means. But if you are in Christ, the question I have to ask you is this. How consistent is repentance in your relationship with God? And how does that show up? Because again, if we are to take this walk with God seriously, repentance has to feature into our relationship with God. And there are no barriers. We just read that. We are inundated with grace. We have redemption through his blood. Right? There's just nothing else that is holding us back from that. That word redemption has its roots in the Old Testament. Right? It connotes this idea of buying back or restoring something that is lost or something that has been destroyed. And the price of that is the blood of Christ. Right? The cross. So again, we, 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 there is nothing that should prevent us from always going back to God. No matter how crazy the sin might be. Right? Repentance is all of life. The next promise I want to draw on is God's all-embracing plan from verse 8b to 10. Let me read that. So from verse, I will read from the second half of verses, for verse 8, which says, With or in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. See, it's pretty cool that God redeems us to himself. But then he also, he also takes the extra step of ensuring that we know that we belong to him. Right? And God does this by giving us the wisdom and the insight to understand his all-embracing plan. 
the word mystery in verse 9, where it says the mystery of his will, is not meant to connote something that is unknown, but something that is hidden, but now being revealed. And what is being revealed is God's plan to reconcile everything to himself through the person of Christ. And when I say reconcile everything to himself, that includes you. And so the point of these verses is to basically paint for us that there is a future where everything will be consummated, everything will be summed up in the person of Christ Jesus, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so what is the implication for us here? The implication for us here is this, that we are part of that all-embracing plan of God and it should give us hope. Right, it should give us hope. Now, the way we use hope in the English language, like if I say, oh, I hope it doesn't rain today. Oh, I hope the Chiefs win. No. I hope the 49ers win. <laughs> All right, when we use the word hope, it, it, it's, we use it with this sense of optimism. Right? It's kind of like we don't know if it will happen. I hope it happens. You know, I wish it happens. Right? Hope in the Bible is not like that. Right? Hope in the Bible speaks of this guarantee of good. Like there is an expectation, a guaranteed expectation of good. Right, so when I say those verses, verses 8b to 10, that talks about the all-embracing plan of God, right, should give you hope. What I mean is it should give you this guarantee right, that everything will be united in Christ. Everything will be summed up in him. Right? Christ is the supreme administrator of God's will. And God is working, working to make sure you are part of that plan. You are, you, you, you are aligned with him. And all is consummated with him, consummated within him. So if you are brought low by your sins, we just talked about repentance. I want you to always have hope. Hope that Christ always welcomes you. And a time is coming when all of that will go away, where there will be no tears anymore. Right? And everything will be restored as it should be. If you are facing affliction, I want you to have hope that the arm of God is not beyond your situation. And he knows, he sees. And he will walk everything out for good. And that good is your conformity to the image and the likeness of his son. He will walk it out. The third promise I want to draw out is from verses 11 to 13. And it's this idea of a godly heritage. Let, let, let me quickly read that. Uh, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who walks all things according to the counsel of his will. Excuse me. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, or the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Within these verses, you probably notice this, um, there's this shift, this change of personal pronouns between uh, you know, first and second person pronouns. All of that is just connoting this idea that uh, the people of God, the Israelites were the first, right, that God drew to himself to use as an example to draw all of us to himself, right? But I'm not going to delve into that because the promises here is for all of us. Right? Because again, everything is being consummated in the person of Christ. 
Within that phrase, in him we have obtained an inheritance. The word obtained, it means we are, it means chosen or appointed. And the word inheritance, uh, speaks of those who are God's portion, his chosen heritage. Right? Most people, or most theologians, I should say, believe that that phrase actually refers back to Deuteronomy 32 verse 9, which I'm going to read. Which says, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. <clears throat> the point I want you to see from these verses is this. Everyone who is in Christ, everyone who believes in him, everyone who has this relationship with Christ, every one of us are God's chosen people. See, so we have been claimed by God as his own inheritance. So when those verses talk about how we are going to acquire possession of our inheritance, it's actually that God acquires possession of us fully. Because we are his inheritance. We have a godly heritage. We have been brought into the family of God. The the rest of verse 11 says something that I think we should look at. So let me read verse 11 again. It says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's how you know Paul is deep. He says all these things. They're like, what is he talking about? <laughs> what I want you to see here again is this. I want you to see the deliberate acting and willing of God to bring you to himself. Right, it's essentially God making a secure promise on top of secure promise, where God is saying, "I got you, I have you." It's basically God saying, "I chose you before time. I laid out a decree and a plan, a purpose, and I will ensure that I work it all out. I will ensure that that plan is fulfilled." As if anything God decrees won't be fulfilled. But on top of that, He's saying, "I would even ensure. I have decreed it, but I would ensure." It is fulfilled according to my will. This is God saying that if you will have me, I will have you and be yours forever. And you be mine forever. Again, this is this invitation from God. Now, what's the implication of this? The implication of all of this, and this gets back to deepening our intimacy with God, is that God is doing all of these things. He's pouring himself out. He's extending an invitation to us for only one purpose, which is in verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. This is the point of God's all-embracing plan, the praise of his glory. Right, this is the point of Christ sacrificing himself on the cross so that we might avoid eternal judgment. God has one goal in all of this that we may proclaim his excellencies, that our lives might reflect his glory, and that we truly become the image bearers he created. That we be conformed to his image, the likeness, the nature of his son. Sometimes when we hear that God's goal is his glory, it, it, it sort of it sounds funny. Uh, God seems very prideful and egotistical, you know, all about himself. There is this quote um, from J.I. Parker's Concise Theology uh, book that I think would help us. So let me read it. And I think Nick probably quoted this before, I think. But let me read this. It says, God's goal is his glory. 
But this needs careful explanation, for it is easily misunderstood. It points to a purpose not of divine egoism, as is sometimes imagined, but of divine love. If you're like me, you're asking why, how? Certainly, God wants to be praised for his praiseworthiness and exalted for his greatness and goodness. He wants to be appreciated for who he is. But the glory that is his goal is in fact a two-sided, two-stage relationship. It is a conjunction of A, the first part, revelatory acts on his part whereby he shows his glory to men and angels in free generosity. And part B, responsive adoration on their part, on our part, whereby we give him glory out of gratitude for what we have seen and received. In this conjunction, this two-part conjunction, is realized the fellowship of love for which God's rational creatures were and are made and for which fallen human beings, like us, have now been redeemed. The to and fro of seeing glory in God and giving glory to God is the true fulfillment of human nature at its heart. The point is this. God's goal being his glory, within that is your good. Because as you see his glory, you reflect that glory back to him. right? In thanksgiving, in adoration, in gratitude. And because he loves you. Right, because he is for you, right? All of that is beautifully summed up in this. If his goal for you is conformity into the likeness of his son, think about that. His son, the only begotten one, and he is saying, My goal for you is to be like him who is the express radiance of my glory. Right? Within the goal of God's glory is our good. So again, the question I have to ask you is this. How seriously are you taking your relationship with God? How seriously are we taking this invitation to intimacy? We all have plans for our lives and careers. Do we plan for growth in God? Do we take our time to reflect on what it means to grow? How do I grow? I once read a book where the author of the book asked the question, which at first I thought was funny, but it was really convicting. And the question was, are you planning not to sin? I'm like, oh, no, not really. <laughs> like, no, I don't think about that. <laughs> right? but, but it's important. Do we yearn for Christ to be not only Savior? Because we all want that. But do we yearn for him to be Savior and Lord? Because it's not a one-sided thing. It's two parts of the same coin, two sides of the same coin. But we know that we don't do all of this in our own strength, right? Right? This this is not something like we we grit our teeth and go do, and we'll talk about application, right? But we must be taking this seriously. And then the last promise I want to draw from this verses is from verses 13 to 14. It is this idea of this unshakable anchor in God. Let me read verses 13 and 14. It says, In him, which is Christ, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. 
There is obviously a shift here in this song of praise from focusing on God's plan, which is still God's plan, to the reception of the truth, to the reception of what God has given, right? You see, but salvation isn't simply about hearing, but about believing, right? And to that end, God gives us the promised Holy Spirit as a seal, Now, what is a seal? A seal is supposed to convey authenticity and ownership. And in this case, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is given, is a seal given to believers to validate that they belong to God. Now, the presence of the Holy Spirit, which is manifested in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, right? But more importantly, in the fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? More importantly, right? And that fruit is proof of the genuineness of our faith. This is why for anyone who truly believes in Christ, you cannot remain the same over a period of time. You cannot. While growth and change might sometimes be imperceptible, there has to be a trajectory towards God. Right? And when I say over a period of time, I'm not talking about two months. Right? I'm talking about a significant time. Meaning you cannot say, oh, I've been a Christian for the past 10 years, but I am exactly the same. Right? There has to be changes. Again, it might be imperceptible to the physical eyes, but there are changes. There is that trajectory towards God. The word for guarantee in verse 14 describes the Holy Spirit as a down payment of sorts that assures Full payment. It assures complete payment. So therefore, it's, it's like the Holy Spirit is God's first installment on making us His. And He guarantees, right? Giving us the Holy Spirit is a guarantee that He will make us His fully, completely. Where we are fully like Him. So this is God's promise to you, reminding you never to let go. Reminding you that He will not let go if you would have Him. He will not let go. And the Holy Spirit is given to us for empowerment, for life. And then we'll come back to that. But like I said, the full inheritance that we eventually take full possession of is actually God taking possession of us fully. Where we are fully His. So what's the implication of this? Scriptures like this have a way of exciting me on one hand and also calming me on the other hand. Right? I'm excited because I know and I understand what the future holds. Right? I know how all things end. I know how everything is summed up in him. I know that I am forever his. I know that even though I might struggle with things now, right? the goal of all of that is he will make me his forever. I know that I'm not left hanging, I'm not left alone. We know that we belong to God as evidenced of the promised Holy Spirit which he has given. But the text also calms me down. It becomes an anchor for my soul. That during the turbulent storms of life, I understand how everything ends. Right? Even with the passing of the nine souls, right? it is a, a reminder for me that we, we live in two realities. This physical reality, then there's a reality of the spirit in Christ. Right? We live in two realities. Right? And so this text calms me down because I understand that at the end of the day, God is sovereign and he is loving and he is working everything together. 
to bring us to that consummation in Christ that we become like him more and more and more so I am reminded to live life to make plans right? but to always leave room for God to leave room for divine mystery to submit to God that even those plans and the living of life right, is within him and so it, it, it reminds me to wear this world, world loosely right, and to carry myself lightly and to do so with joy the implication of these verses for me is joy now you may ask why why is it joy the implication is deep deep seated joy that comes from God joy that transcends circumstances and situations again because I know the plan of God I know what he's walking towards I know what that end looks like and so what comes out of this is joy and that joy becomes an anchor for my soul now that we've said all of this, what is the application? We've looked at Ephesians 1, verses 6 to 14. What is the application? How do we respond? We've talked about how we are inundated by grace, the miracle of all miracles, forgiveness in Christ Jesus. We've talked about repentance, the provision of repentance. We've talked about how we should have hope, hope in Christ, like guaranteed expectation of good in Christ. We've talked about the fact that God has brought us, adopted us into his family, and so we have a godly heritage. We've talked about the promised Holy Spirit given unto us for empowerment of life. How do we respond to all of this? We talked about joy. Joy that transcends joy that, that comes from God, which transcends the temporal and always values the eternal. Right Now, from... This study, I am convinced that God again is always offering to us this invitation into a deep, deep, interactive, interactive relationship with himself. Part of that is the giving of the Holy Spirit, interactive relationship with himself. Now, in light of this, how do we respond? So last time I was here, I talked about prayer as a way we respond, right? And we talked about how prayer is not a... A transactional tool. It's not an approach or a method we leverage to get what we want. Right? We talked about how prayer should be this act of emptying ourselves of all false belongings for the sake of becoming intimate with God. Right? It is where we progressively lead our agendas, our need for control, the outcomes we desperately want, and we increasingly take up our cross. And follow Christ Jesus joyfully. Right? So we talked about all of that. And now all of that is prayer. Right? There are of course many other implications I think we can draw from this passage. One big one is evangelism. Right? If God has given all of this to us. Right? And blessed us with all these promises. And we know his all embracing plan is to unite all things in himself. Right? It behooves us to share this message, right? As God gives opportunity and grace, right? So evangelism is obviously one application of this, right? Uh, We know another application of this is dealing with anxiety and some existential questions we might face and facing afflictions and life is hard, right? And just being able to face life and some some of the hard things we come across. 
But the application I want to focus on today, which sort of undergirds all of this, is the application of knowing God. Right? So we talked about prayer, which is part of knowing God. Today I want to focus on this application of knowing God. Now how do we do this? Right? My suggestion is that we do this by feasting on his word. Right? My suggestion is that to know God is to feast on his word. And I'm not talking about, again, this transactional, you know, let me check the box, I read my devotion, I read this couple of verses, I'm good. Right? I'm talking about you pay attention, you are present. Right? Let, let me give an example. Right? If you are single and someone were to introduce you to another person, a potential spouse, right? what you do from that point on is you try to get to know the person. You are present, you talk to the person, you meet with them, you are present. And hopefully you are learning about the person. Because we all know there's a difference between knowing about someone, even seeing the person in church and saying, what's up, how are you doing, how was your week? There's a difference between all of that, knowing what they like, you know, what they like to do, hobbies, whatever. There's a difference between knowing facts and actually knowing the person, right? Actually being in relationship with the person, right? And, and, And so... With God, we want to ensure that our lives are structured in a way that we are getting to know Him. And He's provided everything grace, the Holy Spirit. Right? He, he has not left us alone. Right? And so there is that opportunity for us to get to know Him. Now, let me really quote that is very convicting for me because this is usually my response to uh, you know, things like this. So the, the point of this quote is stressing that we make time for what is important. Right? We don't find time, we make time for what is important, for who is important. So let me read the quote. A response to giving attention to personal soul care often is, I don't have time for extensive study of God's word, prayer, fasting, solitude, science, whatever it is. I have too much to do. The truth is, you don't have time not to study God's word. You don't have time not to engage in prayer, in fasting, in solitude, in silence. No time is more profitably spent than that used to heighten the quality of an intimate walk with God. If we think otherwise, we have been badly educated. The real question is, will you make time to do what is necessary for an abundant, intimate walk with God? So again, the point of this is saying that we make time. I know we're busy. Life here is crazy, right? And I'm really talking to myself. But we make time. We have to for what is important. So let me challenge us with the words God said to Joshua. Right? Where he says that this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but that you shall meditate upon it day and night, so that you are careful to observe what is written. It's not saying memorize scripture so that you can quote scripture so that people can know you read scripture. That's not the point. Right? But you are meditating on it so that you are careful to observe what is written, to do it. 
So again, to know God is to feast on His Word. The primary way of knowing God is His Word. Right? That this is the most complete revelation we have of Him. Right? This is truly the only way to know the character and the nature of God. Right? So, um, we can't say, Oh, Botulu, I love to worship and sing songs. Like, that's great. But you have to get into the Word. Right? You have to know Him. And what you would actually find out is that a lot of songs, a lot of hymns, actually draw from Scripture. Right? But it's important to know Him. Now, rather than tell you a plan of how you study the Bible and what to do, what I'm going to do is I'm going to point to certain intangibles in this charge to take seriously uh, the, the call of knowing God. The first thing is going to seem not related, but it's related. Um, and the first point I'm going to make is slow down. Like, learn to slow down in your life. To eliminate hurry and busyness from your life. And the point of that is this. It's when you slow down, and when you are reading the word and engaging in the word, you have to be, you have to be slow paced enough to be able to connect what's in the word to what's happening in your life. Let me say that another way. If I'm always busy, when I read the word, I don't connect it with my life because it's something I have to do and I have to go. Right? I don't take time to reflect on why did I react that way to that person? What is underneath that? I don't really have time. You see, we, I might sit down there for 20 minutes, but the truth is if I don't have the slower pace of life that makes me focus and be present, right? I'm just there. My mind is running everywhere. And so it's important to, as a way of life to eliminate this hurry, this busyness, this crazy running around. I know it's hard. But we fight for that, and grace is provided. The Holy Spirit is given unto us, so we fight for that, to slow down, so that we can make connection from Scripture to our inner life. The second thing I'm going to say is, it, it's good to set apart time to study. It's not going to happen automatically. Right? Again, just because we are busy, it's, it's, it's important to set up our time. Maybe have a place, get into a comfortable routine, a comfortable place where you can be present. Right? So, so walk at that. Plan for it. Right? If you know you want to study tonight, plan towards that. I want to study tonight. So therefore, I have to still, I can't be so tired by the time nighttime comes and then I say I want to study. It doesn't work. Right? So plan for it. Thirdly, when we actually get to studying scripture, context is critical. Right? Context is critical. Right? And the point I'm saying is this. It is very easy for us to take any passage of scripture, lift it out of the context, and apply it anyhow. And I'll give you an example. In Jesus' temptation with the devil, right? you all know this, Satan quoted scripture. Right? He quoted scripture to try to manipulate Christ to do what he wanted to do. Funny enough, he was quoting from a verse, a passage that actually speaks of his demise in Psalm 91. Right? But he quoted a scripture from there. <laughs> right? To try to twist Christ. Right? And, and that's what I'm saying. Right? We, we have to read things in context. If you read an email from someone or you're reading a new, let me stick with an email. If you're reading an email from someone, you, you know who the person is. 
right? You are the recipient. And so you read it with a certain perspective. You don't go to the middle of the email and lift up a phrase and then hold on to it. You don't do that. We don't even read normal books like that, novels. But for some reason, we read scripture like that. Oh, Jeremiah 29, 11 is for me. Right? Not reading the context of it. Now, what we take from Jeremiah 29, 11 is true. Right? God has a plan for you to give you a hope and a purpose in the future. But when you read the context, you begin to understand that God was saying to them, yes, you are going into slavery. And no, nobody is coming to save you. And yes, you are going to be there for 70 years. And yes, I have a good plan for you. Right? And that helps you. That helps you because when you face difficult situations, then you don't think, oh man, what did I do to God? But if you don't understand the context, you begin to misapply things. And that can be hurtful. Right? So context is critical. And when I talk about context, I'm talking about two things. I'm talking about the literary context, meaning you read a little bit above, you read a little bit below. You might have to read the entire chapter. Sometimes you might have to read the entire book. And then I'm also talking about historical context. What was happening at the time? Take the letters of Paul, First Corinthians, right? There was usually some communication and he's responding to certain things. Ephesians wasn't like that. Ephesians was him actually just sitting down and writing about his perspective of Christianity. Right? So the context matters because you want to know what the original author was thinking about and how the original recipients would have taken that. Right? Now we know beneath all of that is the work of the Holy Spirit because he is obviously the author of scripture because scripture is inspired by him. Right, but the context helps you so that you can step back and potentially see the themes of what God is doing underneath everything else. Now, how do you get to this context? Because oh, I don't know Greek right, and I don't know Hebrew. Right? And it's important sometimes to know what the original language means because when you translate things, it's just it's crazy. Right? Um, you buy commentaries. Buy commentaries. I know some of them are academic and some of them can be hard to read, but there are easier ones to read. Right? Buy commentaries. Pick a book of the Bible you want to study. Start small. Right? Don't pick revelations. Start with something small. Right? Buy a commentary. Read the Bible. Read the commentary. I am not saying the commentary is going to tell you everything in there. I am saying the commentary is going to help give you context. So that as the Holy Spirit moves in you, you are reconciling everything together. And it makes sense. Right? So context is critical. Not so that it's, I'm, I'm not, again, I'm not saying commentaries will tell you exactly what's in there. I'm saying they will help provide the background, the context, which will help you understand and be able to connect it to your own lives. And then lastly, read meditatively. The reason I talked about context, first of all, is I don't want you to come up with funny ideas and imaginations. And, oh, Jesus told the rich man to give everything. Let me go give everything away, including everything I have. I'm not saying that. Right? It's good to have context. And then you read meditatively. What I mean by that, again, is you slow down. You think about where does this impact my life? How does this touch me? What feelings do this inspire in me? Am I drawing away from this? I am, am I drawing towards this? What is going on on my inside as I read these things? And this is why I talked about you have to slow down. 
a lot of times to get beneath what's going on in your heart, it takes time. Right? You might find out that, you know what, I'm just kind of edgy this whole week. And honestly, the whole point of it might be some something you had with your spouse or maybe someone overlooked you at work and that has just been affecting you. And until you settle down and sometimes take time to settle down, you don't see that. And some of us just continue going and going based on some of those wrong emotions within us. So again, the, the four things I would say is slow down, eliminate hurry in your life, right? Plan to study, have a plan. Right? Try to plan to study. Right? And if the plan fails, that's fine. You just keep trying. But plan to study. Um, context is critical. Right? The way you get to context a lot of times is you buy commentaries. Right? And uh, I will talk about commentaries later. If you have questions, we can talk about it. And then read meditatively. Right? See where this connects to your life. So uh, as part of my New Year request to you, <laughs> a New Year challenge to you is... Take seriously your relationship with God. Right? Plan to eliminate hurry and busyness in your life. Try. If, if you're struggling, like I said, on how to know God and how to engage God, pick a book of the Bible. Try to buy a commentary. It's not that expensive. Right? And then walk through it. Right? Or buy a study Bible. That helps too. Walk through it. Right? But take seriously your relationship with God. Plan for growth. Apply the same zeal you apply to planning for your career and planning for your vacations and planning for all those other great things, your family. Plan for your time with God, for growth in God. And again, like I said, we don't do this with our strength, right? We will falter, we will fail. And even that is part of the process. Even that is part of the learning. Right? And by and by... As we do this, we are creating a space to behold the face of God. Right? To behold his face, his unveiled face. And we are increasingly being transformed into his likeness. So let's pray. So Father, thank you. Help us to not hear all of this and be overwhelmed. But help us to see this as an invitation to intimacy and that you are there, that you give strength, you give empowerment. Let let this be a turning point in our lives where we carve out time intentionally to know you. And I am praying, God, that you will give us grace that as we engage with you, we will see those moments where you are winking at us, where it is clear that you are speaking by your Holy Spirit into our personal lives. Right? Reaching to us, reminding us, showing us that you are here, that you love us, and that you are for us, and that you want to be with us. You always enjoy being with us. The image of the prodigal son really the prodigal father comes to mind that on sighting the son coming towards him the prodigal father stands up and runs towards the son let us have that image in our mind that that is how you look at us when we come to you you long to be with us and help us truly desire you and enjoy your word and enjoy being with you god and by your holy spirit teach us 
Teach us your word. Teach us about yourself. Draw us into a deeper, more fulfilling, intimate relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.